to monitor the uh, chat room that we have going on there and see if we can fix it because we've had a couple of issues with various microphones just popping up in the last couple of weeks. But I think if you can hear me now and it sounds like I'm coming through, uh, then we'll just stick with this. But if we have an issue, I may have to switch a microphone or something like that. Philippians chapter number three, and I am going to jump directly into the text in verse number eight. And after we go through, through some of this scripture, we'll talk about the title of the message and the theme of it and how we fit it into this time of the year. But Philippians chapter number three, Paul is giving them various instructions to watch out for false teachers and to not put confidence in their flesh. Then he talks about how that if anyone should be able to have confidence in their flesh, he should, but then goes into saying some of the mistakes that he made and the sins that he committed when he was away from God, not saved, and how it led him in the zealousness of religion to actually do sins that were apart from the will of God. And we'll back up and talk about a few of those verses in just a minute. But then in verse number eight, he gives his testimony after transitioning out of talking about when he lived apart from God, religiously zealous, but not according to the word of God. He says this in verse number eight, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Verse 9, And being found and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says, I did keep the law before. I was doing the Old Testament as a Pharisee to the best of my ability. But God brought me to the place where when I met Jesus Christ, I realized that if I was going to have salvation, it could be not of my own righteousness, which comes through the law, but faith of Christ, which is of God by faith. For by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And what Paul testified at other points in his writings was that the Old Testament law was not given to the Jews or to the world as a way to earn our way to God, but rather as a way to prove to us for all time that we cannot earn our way to God by our good works, because no man can perfectly keep the law. Then he states, this is the goal of his life going forward in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's talking about in verse number 10, how now his life goals is to know Jesus Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, but also be willing to suffer the fellowship of his sufferings and of his death. When we're called to identify with Jesus Christ, we have victory, we're promised victory, but we have to remember what Jesus said, that if the world hated him, and if he had to suffer persecution and death, all of that is going to be a part of our Christian journey. Then in verse 11, he's talking about wanting to know God and says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That word there, attain, is one that pops up a couple times in the next three verses, which are our main text. And what the word simply means is to take, to get a hold of, 
to grasp upon it. So some people have debated a little bit, what does Paul exactly mean there in verse 11 that he's trying to attain the resurrection of the dead? Some people say, well, is he talking about the rapture? And other people say, well, is he talking about a better reward, that he wants to attain rewards when Christ comes through living for him? But I kind of think what he's talking about is simply about salvation and how that is the means of the resurrection. If you back up to verse number 9, he's talking about salvation, his righteousness being found in Christ, not in the law. And then the thought kind of continues through about living for Christ and attaining unto that resurrection of the dead. We're able to be a partaker in that when we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then he says this in verse number 12, not as though I had already attained... Remember what the word means. He's saying not as though I had already grasped, gotten hold of, gotten it all down, or have arrived is the way that we would say it. Not as though I had already achieved or attained everything that I need to achieve. The verse continues, either were already perfect. He realized that though he was saved, he was not perfect at this point in time. He wrote in Romans chapter 7 and other places in the Bible about the struggle that he had with his own flesh. Even though he had already known Jesus Christ as his Savior, his testimony was, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And in Romans 7, he says, Because there's things that I really want to do that sometimes I fail to do. And there's other things which I abhor because I know they're sin and I really want to stay away from them. And sometimes I find myself doing those things anyway. Who in this morning, if we were to take testimony, could identify with those verses? Probably each and every one of us in some way or another, there's good things we want to accomplish that we don't. There's bad things we don't want to do that we end up doing because we're still in the flesh. Jesus has delivered us from the power of death, from destruction and damnation in hell when we die, but a new glorified body that does not have a sin nature is not going to come till a future moment when Christ returns, when the dead are raised, and we receive that glorified body that is not going to want the sins of the flesh anymore. That's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day. But Paul, writing in Romans 7, in the present tense, says, I see another law warring in my members. That's something that a lost person does not have, but a saved person has a new nature, the presence of the Holy Spirit, yet it's still housed in this body of flesh that sometimes is going to desire to do wrong, and we're going to have to enter into that struggle in one way or another for the rest of our life, to try and put behind us the anger, whatever that sin is, we're going to have to claim the victory in Christ and be willing to struggle against it in order to get the victory. Then he continues. So I, I've not already achieved. I, I'm not already perfect. Then he says in verse 12, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. The phrase here, follow after, means to pursue. And as part of our Christian life, if we want to grow in grace, we're going to have to pursue Jesus Christ. We're going to have to pursue character and consistency. He says, I'm following after that I may take hold of, that I may achieve that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Another application of that word apprehend is possession. 
And what he's saying here is that I am possessed of Jesus Christ. He has me, but I do not yet have all of those things such as sinless perfection that I wish I had. So I'm going to follow after Christ. I'm going to follow after Christian growth for the rest of my days, knowing that I'm not trying to earn my salvation because Jesus Christ already possesses me, but I don't possess perfection. So I'm going to have to keep striving to grow in grace. Then verse 13 and 14 are the text verses this morning. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Remember, to have arrived, to have achieved, taken hold of everything I need. But this one thing I do. Okay, so I know I'm taking this little bit by bit, phrase by phrase. But he says, I'm not perfect. I've not achieved. I've got to keep following after Christ. But there is one thing that God has taught me to do that I want to share with you. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. If we are going to live the Christian life, if we are going to grow in grace and achieve what God wants us to achieve, we are going to have to get this lesson and this message in the Word of God, from God to Paul, to the church at Philippi, to us today. And that is that no matter what has come behind, there are going to be times where we need to forget about what's already taken place, leave it in the past, and reach forward and keep going onward forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about in a minute. The Apostle Paul had a lot of sins in his past, a lot of bad ones. But honestly, what he says here is he doesn't even tie it to necessarily things that are bad, but to all things. Because yes, if we sin, we're going to have to confess that to God, forsake it forget about it and keep going. But even if we had great victories and achievements, we could come to the place where we're always living in the past, remembering what God used to do when God says, I want you to leave that behind and figure out what do I have for you to do today from this moment forward. Forget about it and keep going on, whether it's good or bad, and live for me and go forward to what I have for you today. It's not that he doesn't want us to learn our lesson. It's not that he wants us to erase history. It's not that he doesn't want us to look back and count our blessings and rejoice for what Christ has done. But he does want us to not live in the past. We're going to have to do what Paul said when he said, this one thing I do, forget about what's behind you and reach forward. And what Paul does in verse 13 and 14 is something that he often does. He uses a sports analogy. He references the Greek games where they instituted in the old days, the Olympics, where they would go and they would battle and they would try to win a prize. Verse 14, but I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The word press here means to follow after, to work for, for what? For the mark, towards the mark, a mark is a goal. So he's saying, I'm pressing, I'm following after, I'm working to achieve a goal. And then he says, for the prize. The word prize there in the Greek specifically says a prize awarded such as an Olympic game or a gold or a medal. The way that we still see the Olympics today, they train, they work, and then they get to the games. And what they're trying to do is to win that prize that shows that they have achieved something, that they have won. 
but he's not trying to win an earthly prize. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The high calling or the upward calling. That's what I'm working towards. That either when the rapture comes and I'm called up or when I die, I will have lived my life for Christ and pressed forward and onward and have achieved a prize from God. What do we see the Bible tell us? And in the book of Revelation, it says that there's crowns that we can win as we live for Jesus Christ. We can be awarded crowns. And the book of Revelation says that they took their crowns and cast them at the feet of God himself. We don't want to win prizes for our honor or our glory, but rather that someday we may get to heaven and have tangible evidence to say to Jesus Christ, I lived my life for you. This is not about me and it's not for me. It's about you. I don't know about you, but I would like to in some way or another be able to be awarded a prize for this Christian life that one day I may tell Christ I loved you. And this is some evidence of the fact that I strived to live for you. The title of the message this morning is New Beginnings. With January 1st being yesterday, we've left another year behind us in the history books that we will never revisit. And at this time of year, it's on our minds to set goals and to say, well, now that we're in a brand new year, what are some things that I've neglected that I want to start doing? Among the top things that people say are their New Year's resolutions. It's to lose weight or to eat healthy or to save more money or to get organized. And sometimes we can fall into a pattern of, oh, well, let's just set a goal for January and wait till then and then failing at it. But oftentimes God does bless our efforts not to try and be perfect, but to try and set a new goal. And a lot of times when we do have a goal to work towards, then it can be used in our life to actually have some achievements. Because if we aim at nothing, we'll hit nothing. So even if we set a goal that's a little bit lofty and we miss it, at least we're trying. At least we're trying to be on that path. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5 if you'd like to look there. But while a lot of people have goals that aren't necessarily bad, what we're going to talk about this morning is that in Jesus Christ our Lord, in salvation and in the Christian life, God has promised us an endless series of new beginnings if we will but seek His will and accept His grace. I have a lot of scripture from here on out through the rest of the message. I hope that you'll stick with me this morning. But Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 says this, Paul, again writing, says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous." The Bible is telling us that just like as Adam sinned and sin entered into the world and death passed upon all men, so too in Jesus Christ fulfilling the role as the other Adam came into the world, obeyed God, died for our sins, and that through one man's disobedience, death passed upon all, but through the obedience of Christ, life and redemption is offered to law. To all. Verse 20, what was the purpose of the law? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. 
So why was the Old Testament law given not to say, keep this and you can go to heaven, but rather ultimately to lead the nation of Israel and all mankind to the conclusion, you can't perfectly keep the commandments of God. Therefore, you need a savior. The law taught us that we were a sinner, which opens our eyes to the fact that we need a savior. The law entered that sin might abound, that we might know how bad sin is in the world and in our own heart. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The little phrase there from verse number 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound is a principle and a promise of God that God could have chosen in his justice to let mankind choose to sin and then simply condemn them for their sin. But instead, God, through Jesus Christ, said, I'm going to offer you forgiveness. I'm going to offer you grace. I'm going to offer you redemption. And the principle that he established is that wherever sin is found and wherever sin is abounding, the grace of God is not able only to come alongside and to outweigh the sin, but to much more abound. Some people may say, well, I've got sin in my past. I don't think I can start over. I don't think God can use me. Consider for a moment the writer of half of the New Testament who wrote the text we're taking this morning, the Apostle Paul. If you know your Bible, this is all familiar to you, but his name was not always Paul. It used to be Saul. And he persecuted the church. I'll read you a few verses. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 8, and Saul was consenting unto his death. Speaking about the death of Stephen, a deacon, the good man who was serving the Lord. Saul oversaw his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You say, well, what's going to happen if persecution comes to the church in America? And by the way, if you study history, it's usually a question of when, if not if, that persecution starts to come. Because whatever it is, if it's a man-made institution like government, eventually, over time, things begin to decay. They begin to corrupt. And when people begin to lose their freedoms and people come in and say, I want the power and they want to control the people. Fidel Castro in Cuba, when he took power, went after the pastors and shut down the churches because they wanted to control the two things that communists always want to control, the schools and the churches. Because if they can indoctrinate the children when they're little and then they can shut down the churches, they know that if people don't study the word of God, the odds are they'll be more compliant because the word of God teaches us to say no to evil. The word of God teaches us to do what is right. And evil people and evil leaders do not want the word of God proclaimed because they want to control the people. You say, well, what's going to happen if that comes? Is that going to be the end for God working? I don't know. But look at what happened after Jesus went back up to heaven. He was not limited by the fact that the Jews were persecuted and occupied and being killed. Rather, the gospel began to spread like a wildfire. And it even says specifically at one point, the persecution came and hit. And it says they spread everywhere preaching the gospel. 
If they had to flee their homes and go live in the mountains, the people they came into contact with on the way, they preached the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And you have to have faith and repentance in Him for remission of sins. And if you're saved, you should be baptized and then become discipled and study all the commands of the Word of God and keep them. And at one point they said of the disciples, here come these that turn the world upside down. Not because the government ordained it, but in spite of the government trying to throw them in jail and kill them and persecute them. The gospel was mighty and it spread all around the world. And 2,000 years later, on the other side of the globe, we're here this morning gathered in the name of Jesus Christ because disciples who were faithful, not who believed in a lie or a hoax, but who had seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyes were willing to be thrown into jail and fed the lions and live for Christ. And the gospel spread because God blessed the preaching of His Word as He always will. Verse 2 of Acts 8 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. This year, as we watched on TV, the horrific things happening in Afghanistan and how when America withdrew, the terrorists came out of the hills and started coming back into control and persecuting people and doing horrible things. One of the things we're told they did was they went house to house to find Christians and they took their cell phones and they looked for the Bible app. And if they found it, they did things to you and your family that we wouldn't want to talk about this morning. And the Bible says that this man, Saul, he was a Jew. He was so zealous of his Old Testament religion that he said, well, Jesus is proclaiming to be God, but I don't believe he's the Messiah. Therefore, he's a false prophet. Therefore, he's a heretic. Therefore, Christians are too. And we're going to go find them and hunt them down and put them to death. He stood there after Stephen was stoned to death and watched it happen because he was the one in charge you say, could God ever forgive a man like that? Could God ever use someone like that? One day Saul met Jesus Christ face to face and he got born again. And God changed Saul into Paul, not just in name, but in character, in the rest of his life and in his direction and turned him into a mighty warrior for Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that the gospel doesn't change lives. Andrew uh, testified last week of his dad and of the different things that his family was into and the running of drugs. But then when they got saved, when someone shared the gospel message and they repented of those sins, when they repented of unbelief and said, I want Jesus Christ, God changed not only their life, but the lives of future generations to come. The book of James says, Let it be known that he which convert converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death. That's one thing that happens when someone gets saved. Yes, their soul is saved. Then James says, And shall hide a multitude of sins. Because the sins that would have been committed, the sins in the lives of generations to come, the gospel's able to change and turn it around and hide those sins so that they never happen. Saul got saved and started to live for Jesus Christ and the church didn't even trust him. 
That's understandable. Acts 9, 26 says, When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. I understand that fear. They said, this is a double agent. This is the one who killed Stephen. This is the one who went house to house and killed the Christians. Now he's just pretending to be a Christian and he's going to kill us. But there was a man named Barnabas who the Bible says took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Barnabas had to remind Paul himself at a later date, this guy, John Mark, who forsook us, let's allow him to come back and be a part of our missionary journey. Let's give him a second chance. And it was this same Barnabas who looked at Saul and saw the evidence that God had changed his life. And he said to the church, let's give him a chance. God has changed him. And that's a good lesson for us as a church to always be ready to accept the prodigal back, to always be ready to give others another chance because God has done the same for us. God saved him. Jesus changes people. And salvation, that encounter with Jesus Christ where we become born again, is the ultimate new beginning. Because no matter what has been done, as God said in the book of Isaiah to his people, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord of hosts. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as snow. Yesterday morning, January 1st, it was hot in our house and we had the air conditioning on. And by the time we went to bed, it was about 18 degrees. And driving in this morning, I saw little bitty flurries of snow. I don't know if it'll happen this year, but about a year ago, we had the power outages and that horrible storm, but it's still so beautiful to see the snow falling down and begin to pile up. And it's like it covers up all the imperfections. And at least before we go stomp around in it and play, we look outside and see that it's like the earth has just been covered with this sheet of white. And the Bible says, no matter how bad your sins are, don't forget that where sin abounds, there the more does grace abound. And though your sins be red like blood, when Jesus comes and covers our sins, He makes them white as snow. He takes them away. He erases them forever and gives us a new life in Jesus Christ. And God used this murderer named Saul to become the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and church planner the world has ever known, and to write half the New Testament... No matter how bad your sin is this morning, don't tell me God can't give you a new beginning. Don't tell me God can't forgive you. Amen. And I'm glad that He does it because I need it just about each and every day. In the Bible, we see characters all over the place. We see Abraham and Isaac who lied sometimes. They were afraid for their life and said, No, she's not my wife. She's my sister. That's not a very great thing to be proud of your husband for doing, but the dad did that. And at one point, the son did that. They lied. They were afraid. Sarah laughed at the promise of God, and God had to remind her, yes, this may be impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. Jacob was a trickster and a liar. Noah got drunk and had some other things go on really bad after the flood. Samson 
became addicted to sin and sought after immorality and led to the place where it cost him his eyesight and his strength. Gideon was hiding and threshing in secret because he was afraid. Rahab was a harlot. David had committed adultery and murdered someone to cover it up. Elijah suffered from depression and asked God to take his life. Moses got angry and God forbade him from going into the promised land because of his sin. Every single one of those characters I just mentioned, you want to know something they all have in common? Every single one of them are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as great examples that when we live by faith, the victory that God brings about in our life. The disciples fell asleep and flew from Jesus when persecution came. Peter denied that he even knew the Lord, but God used them to fulfill the Great Commission. And He used Peter himself to preach on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved and baptized and added to the church on the same day. Because, yes, he denied that he knew the Lord, but he didn't quit. When he heard the rooster crowing and remembered what Jesus said, he didn't say, I'm a failure. He didn't do what Judas did when Judas went out and took his own life. Rather, he went out and he wept bitterly and he repented. And he said, I go, but he said, I go a fishing. He was discouraged. He thought, God can't use me anymore. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he told those who came to the tomb, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm risen and I'm coming to see him. He called out Peter, we believe, not because he was trying to say, Peter, you're not a disciple anymore, but because he knew how discouraged Peter was. And he wanted, yes, all the disciples, but tell Peter, I said his name and I'm coming to find him. And they were out on the boat and Jesus came to where Peter was and they came up to the seashore and Peter was ashamed about some of his sins. And Jesus, instead of raking him over the coals or rebuking him, calling him out. He knew how broken he was. And he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? A simple question based in theology, looking at his heart. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. A little while later, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. A little while later, do you love me? And he was exasperated. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Then go feed my sheep. Not go walk up and down the stairs on your hands and knees like Martin Luther did because he wanted to do penance for his sin. We don't have to pay for our sins like that. Our sins are already paid for, past, present, and future. And Jesus said, just get out there and live for me, Peter. Keep going. And he used his life greatly. A man named John Newton was involved in the 1700s in probably one of the most terrible sins we could commit against humanity when he was involved in the slave trade. He owned the ships that bartered and transported groups of human beings going back and forth, held as slaves, being treated like cattle in inhumane positions, and was involved in, not in the slave trade itself and also in the transportation of it. But something happened to him. He met Christ as well. He converted to Christianity and eventually became a famous abolitionist who said, this slavery is wrong. I don't care that it's legal. It's immoral. And sometimes there's issues like abortion or whatever else we see around us. And people will say, well, it's legal. But legality has never equaled morality. And it is our sovereign... It is our duty, according to God, to speak out against what is wrong and stand up for what is right. 
no matter what the law said. And he said, I don't care what the law is. The law is wrong. Human beings should not be property. And God used him in that, mo- in that movement. And one day he wrote a song that we sing all the time when he sat down and looked back across his life and he penned the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And though at the end of his life he lost his eyesight, he wrote of his past being in sins. I once was blind, but now I see. Because I was spiritually blind, but now my eyes have been opened. Remember what Paul said, no matter what our sins are, he said we should be forgetting the things which are behind and pressing forward. Forget about it. Learn your lesson. Repent. Confess it. Forsake it. And then say, by the grace of God, I'm going to keep going forward and pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of Jesus. It doesn't matter what your past is this morning. If you can breathe in and breathe out, God has a plan for you. Let's turn to Psalm 103. I have two passages I want to get to, and I am resolved to not preach too long today which maybe that should be my New Year's resolution, which I never seem to keep. But what I'm going to do with this passage is what we did with Isaiah 53 a few weeks ago. I'm just going to read it. It'll probably take three or four minutes, but it doesn't need much commentary. So look, if you would, and listen to the words and see the heart of compassion that God has towards sinners. Psalm 103, verse 1. The Word of God says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Psalm 103, we're down to verse number 5. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. That could be called the sister verse of Isaiah 40, 31, our theme verse as a church, if we wait upon the Lord, He will renew our strength and give us wings as eagles. That's what God will do for us spiritually. Verse 6, the Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. This is the heart of God. It's not to punish, it's to, He desires to forgive. He desires repentance. He desires reconciliation. And by the way, David prayed in the Psalms, Lord, deal not with me according to my sin. If He had dealt with us according to our sins, in verse number 10, as you'll sometimes hear people say, well, give me what I deserve. Don't ever pray that because if God dealt with me as I deserve to be dealt with, I'd be lost for all eternity. But he's not dealt with us according to justice, but by mercy. That's what he wants. Verse 11, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. It's been said, grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve. Mercy is when he withholds from me the judgment I do deserve. And God says, you're guilty, you deserve judgment, but I'm going to withhold it and do everything I can to see that you're not punished for that, but that I can forgive you. Verse 12, as the 
as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Pastor used to tell us all the time, if, if you take the globe and trace your finger and start going north, eventually you'll be going south and it'll change back and forth. But if you do the same thing with east or with the west, you can go around and around and around and you're still heading east or still heading west. And the Bible says that's how far God's removed our sins from us. My sins are gone. God's forgiven them. Verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He knoweth our form. He knows what we are. He remembereth that we are dust. You don't look at your newborn child and get angry at them because they need cared for. You know that they're helpless. You love them. You want to help them. And that's how God looks at us. If you sinned, remember God knew you were going to do that sin since before you were ever born. And He still loved you. He still died for you. He still wants to have compassion on you and love you. And He remembers that like Adam was taken from the dust and from the dust will go back. He knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we're frail. But He pities us. He loves us. And He forgives us. And the Christian life can be an endless series of new beginnings if we will but claim it and follow onward. Second Peter 3 9 says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Luke 15 2, the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus Christ and they looked and they saw him sharing meals with drunkards and harlots and cheats. And they said, this man receiveth sinners. And eateth with them. An accusation that they meant to attack his character. But God took that accusation and turned it into a statement of fact that we can rejoice in and celebrate in. Because the Apostle Paul said, remember his testimony of all he went through. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15, it's faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation and adoration and acceptance and celebrating that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Then Paul says, of whom I am chief. Yes, he killed people. Yes, he did terrible things. But I don't believe that Paul was saying, if you look at my life and count up all the sins, it would literally be more of these sins than anyone on the face of the earth. Rather, I believe he was looking at his sin the way we should look at ours. God, I'm the chief of sinners. I am as bad as anyone else is. But praise the Lord that you have received me. Because we're all sinners. And if He didn't receive us as sinners, none of us would make it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray and turned to our own way. Isaiah 64.6 and 7 says that we are like an unclean thing. And even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. No, we cannot earn our way to heaven. And all we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away and we are consumed because of our iniquities. The world has a lot of problems this morning, but ultimately the world has a sin problem. 
And because there's sin, there's sickness. And because there's sickness, there's death. And all of the horrible things we see happening each and every day is because we are sinners by nature and we all have chosen to give in to that nature and sin. But there is a God who is full of mercy we won't turn there for time's sake, but Matthew 12, 15 through 21 talks about how the Pharisees were trying to get a plan to kill Jesus Christ and to take his life and to persecute him. But then it says that while they were doing that, Jesus was over here at a different place, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, helping blind people see. And then it says, thus was the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled, which was in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, when it speaks about the Messiah, the messenger of God. And it says, a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. The word picture there is as a reed, a little bitty plant or blade of grass shaking in the wind that's already bruised. He's not going to break it. The candle that's already about to go out and smoldering, he's not going to come snuff it out because that's not why he came. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned by the time I got here. Rather, he came to treat gently and lovingly those who were broken by sin and on the edge of giving out. And he's come to be kind to them, give them the gospel and offer them eternal life if they but will receive it. That's not what the Jews wanted. The Jews said the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to come as conqueror and as king. And we're tired of these Romans. We're tired of these Gentiles stomping us under their boot. Come on, Messiah on the white horse. Let's go into battle and snuff them all out and set up your kingdom in Jerusalem. And Jesus had to tell him over and over again, all the way up till the moment before he ascended back into heaven. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has in his hand. Don't be worried about when am I going to fulfill that other part of the prophecy because he will one day. Don't worry about that. He's promised it will happen and it shall. He is coming back as king, but he had to tell them right now I'm here to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and I'm not going to quench the candle that's burning out. I'm not going to stomp on the reed. I could if I wanted to. Rather, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to lay down my life and die for the sins of humanity so that there might be grace, so that there might be hope and peace that can be found in the name of Jesus. And oh, by the way, you know what Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4? At the end of that prophecy, 700 years before Jesus, he won't break the, the reed that's bruised. He won't quench the candle that's burning out. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. If you're not a Jew this morning, you're part of the Gentiles. And if, you, if Jesus had done what the disciples had wanted him to do, we wouldn't be able to have salvation. But Isaiah prophesied all the way in the Old Testament, it's always a part of God's plan for salvation to go to us all. And they did come to Jesus by the droves. And it's discouraging sometimes today how many people don't want to come to Jesus, but they're still coming to Him. And it's still worth pressing onward that Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your skin color is, whatever your last name is, whatever your social status is, whatever's in your bank account, Jesus died for you and He wants you and He wants to forgive you no matter how bad your sins are. And this applies to us as Christians as well. No matter how many times we backslide, no matter how many times we fall off the wagon or how many times we sin, God does love us enough to punish us 
And He may send that chastening reed, rod into our life to correct us and get us back on track. He may give us some hard knocks so that we may learn the way of transgressors is hard. Clean up your act. Keep going. But He's not looking to take us out or snuff us out. He's looking to say, Christian, confess that sin, whatever it is. Get over that mistake and keep living for Christ. A just man, Proverbs says, a just man falleth seven times, but rises up again. A just man in the eyes of God is one that falls and gets back up again and falls and gets up and that gets up one more time than he fell. So that when Jesus comes, we could be found on our feet serving him, not on our back serving our flesh with these precious days that we have. Let's go to John chapter eight. I'm going to blow through these verses and then we're done. John chapter 8, I'll skip all the history that I could read, but this story of the woman taken in adultery is one of the most common stories in the Bible that you'll hear critics say, well, this shouldn't really be in the Bible because it wasn't in some of the Greek manuscripts, but it's within the traditional received text, the Textus Receptus, and it's quoted clearly by Christians all the way back in the third century. And I believe with all my heart, it stands in a record as the Word of God. And I know that sometimes we need what they call textual criticism, simply meaning looking at the history, and that's always happened. We're people have compared and said, was this part of the faithful record? But I think that sometimes scholars set themselves up a little bit arbitrarily to say, well, the style here is a little bit different. And uh, well, it wasn't found in these two that we found that were pretty old. So we're going to throw out the 5,000 that it was in and say this wasn't part of the word of God. I believe the record shows this stands among all the other stories that Christ did. I believe the one thing I forgot to do this morning was go back to Philippians 3. If you read the beginning verses before verse 8, Paul will talk about how he persecuted the church. And though he was such a good Jew, he still fell into that sin. So you can go back and look at that later if you'd like to. John chapter number 8, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he's sitting and teaching people. And we'll pick it up in verse number 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst. Now let's hit pause for a moment and consider that the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. Were always trying to catch him not being able to answer in the balancing of the law and how he was the Messiah and their motives were not pure. I honestly believe they were not following the Old Testament law in a thousand different ways at the time that Jesus showed up. And one thing that stands up to us is that if they caught a woman in the act of sin, where's the other person who was involved in it? Was it a trap? We don't know, but the Bible does say that she was caught in a sin and they only brought her, not the other person who was involved. They knew at different places that Jesus accompanied himself with sinners, with people who not only the Pharisees were saying had they done some wrong, but we know the lifestyle they're living. We know what they're engaged in. We know that there's sin, but they weren't going out and getting everyone. They weren't keeping the law perfectly themselves. They simply wanted to trap Jesus, as we'll see. And they use this instance as an opportunity to do so. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now she was guilty. She never even makes a protest about being guilty. She couldn't argue the fact that she had done wrong. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Was that really in the law of Moses? Yes. 
The law of Moses was incredibly harsh. It was incredibly strict. And not only could you be stoned and put to death for this, but for being rebellious to your parents and for refusing to repent of that. And sometimes people will look and say, well, see, there's this one really bad sin that Leviticus said you should be put to death for. So we should do that in our country today. But that was never the point. It was for the Jews for a limited amount of time and God had every right to do it. And he did, but he didn't lay down Old Testament law to be the law in the USA today. He gave it as a way to teach us we're sinners and bring us to salvation. But according to the letter of the law, the way that the Jews were living by, yes, it said, take them outside the city and stone them till they're dead. Hereabout comes the greatest question. Jesus was about forgiveness. Jesus was about mercy. How can judgment and righteousness be balanced with mercy and forgiveness? And how would Jesus answer? Because he would be harsh to her to say, live by the letter of the law and judge her. But he would technically be going against the law of Moses to give her forgiveness. And verse 6 says, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. That was their motive. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. A lot of people have said, well, what was he writing? And the answer is, we don't know. Some have said maybe he wrote specific sins that those men themselves had committed, and that's why they were convicted. Some said, well, maybe it was just his way of ignoring them like he did at different points. Maybe they're like, what are you going to do about this, Jesus? The moment's all hot and the tensions are high. And Jesus is just like, you know, kind of playing around in the dirt. Let it sit for a minute. Verse 7, because they continue to ask him as he writes on the dirt. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Sometimes the wisest ways that Jesus ever answered questions was he refused to answer it on their terms, the way they framed it, and he rejected the premise of the question and asked another question. And he said, okay, that's what the law says. You, uh, Any of you out there who have never committed a sin, you go ahead and get the proceedings going and you throw the first stone. And the Bible says that they knew that they had sinned and they began to remember things that they had done wrong. And the Bible says in verse nine, and when they heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Romans 2.15 says that God uses conscience in our world to bring to mind what we have done wrong. And then either we accuse ourselves, agree with our conscience that we're guilty, or we make excuses, one or the other. But God has created us with a conscience that when we sin, we're convicted and we know that it's wrong. Most of the time, the sins of humanity in our heart of hearts, we know it's wrong. We just want to do it anyway. We don't want to repent. Notice that as they were convicted, they began to go away. They refused to go through with putting her to death. And the Bible says, beginning at the eldest. 
And maybe that elder, it was one of those elders of the city who would serve as a sort of city councilman that was the most respected and everyone had to follow them. And the one who was the oldest and who had gone through the most of life was the first one to be convicted and say, yeah, I've got a lot of sin. Let's show her mercy. And then when he left, the other people were convicted and they followed what he did and one by one went away. But notice what it says at the end of the verse. And I'm at the very end of the message this morning. It says the woman and Jesus were there standing alone. Now think about it. She was this close to death. She was humiliated. She was going to forever be branded as a sinner. And we might think the natural conclusion that as her accusers left would be for her to get up and run for her life and get out of there. But she knew there was something different about the man called Jesus who had so wisely convicted them of sin and given her grace and mercy. And she stayed to see what he would say to her. She didn't just want freedom from death. She wanted direction from God for the rest of her life. When Jesus, verse 10, had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The Bible says in John 1.14 about Jesus Christ, that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't say, yes, die for your sins. He wanted to forgive her, so he said, go. And he didn't just say, go back and live in the same sin you were living in before. He said, go and sin no more. He's full of grace because he forgives us, and he's full of truth because he gives us a new direction that we should forsake those old sins and not walk in them anymore. That's what God desires for us. How could this be just? How could the law of God say stone her for her sin and the Messiah say, no, I'm not going to condemn you. There will be no death for your sin. Live in new life. Go and sin no more. How could this be just? Because the Messiah talking to her knew that in a very short while he was going to go to the cross and die for her adultery. So she didn't have to. And the sins of all mankind that were ever committed, He died for. So that no one would have to die for their sins to receive life from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would make 2022 a a new beginnings for each of us. We're going to go our separate ways this morning. And at some point, I know we're going to fail. 